Welcome to Dividend Talk, episode 162. An interview with Brad Thomas, aka Mr. Reed. Guys, this is a special episode because we have Brad Thomas on, Mr. Reed. In this episode, he will discuss a little bit with us about why he likes investing in real estate investment trusts, a little bit more about his experiences. He educates us also a little bit on how you should evaluate a real estate investment trust. He also lets us know why he's bullish on real estate investment trust in general. And he provides us today with several stock tickers of real estate investment trust that he thinks are at least fairly valued today, or even better, some even undervalued. So guys, get your coffee ready. Enjoy this podcast and see you on the inside. Hey, hey, European DJ. How are you, my friend? Really good. I had a tough week at home, uh, spending the whole week with my kids. But uh, next week I will get back to work again. And yeah, of course, really excited for today because uh, we had a long uh, range of guests in the past. And today we are having Brett Thomas with us. And um, yeah, maybe Brett, maybe for the people that have never heard of you yet, which I uh, think is not really the case, but just in case, uh, could you introduce yourself a bit to us? Great. Thank you. And it's great to, great to see you both. Um, so yeah, I'm Brad Thomas. I uh, uh, I'm a financial writer and uh, analyst and uh, company. I'm the CEO of a company called Wide Moat Research, and um, I've been in the I guess real estate industry for about three decades. So before I became a a uh, I guess a stock writer, uh, I became I was a real estate developer, and so I built uh, primarily shopping centers and a lot of freestanding properties, and got exposed to a lot of different real estate sectors um, and then uh, started writing in about 2010 on Seeking Alpha and over the last 13 years I've uh, been able to build a pretty large following about 110,000 uh, followers and which is the largest on Seeking Alpha and um, we also have other products I'm the editor of Forbes real estate we have a newsletter with Forbes and again I'm the CEO of Wide Moat Research uh, we have a very large uh, business there over 175,000 customers around the world um, and um, which I'm sure include uh, many in Europe, and we have two analysts uh, in Europe as well. So it's always great to connect with you all uh, from the other side of the uh, of the water. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's awesome. It's we have a large listener base here from the US as well, so it's it's always great to get both perspectives. I think we can learn quite a bit looking at each other's styles and and differences. But we're really, really, honestly, we're really excited to have you here. You're known as Mister for a reason um so we can't wait to dig in and, and get some of that knowledge out of you um but before we get into that we usually start our shows with a little bit of the news of the week um and i think given the team of the show we put out lots of different questions or we asked our listeners to provide questions and one of the one that has popped up quite a bit actually is that realty income announces a 950 million investment in bellagio um, I'm not surprised this has come up, but what what did you, what was your initial reaction to that news? Well, actually, I uh, I I I, uh, I guess forecasted that we uh, we we knew Bellagio was going to monetize at least a, an interest with uh, Blackstone, um, and 
you know, a lot of people felt like Vici was probably one of the likely bidders for the property. Of course, we cover Vici as well. H happy to talk about Vici, which is um, the largest gaming REIT. But uh, Realty Income has already, of course, purchased a another uh, casino in Boston called the Encore uh, Boston. It's a win property. And so that was about $1.8 billion. That closed in December of 2022. And so it seemed very likely that Realty Income was going to uh, add more uh, casinos to its portfolio, which of course it has. Now, the way this this uh, Bellagio deal was structured was a little bit unique. Um, so to break it down, it was you're, you're right. It was 950 million, about 350 million or so of that was actually invested in the in the common in the in the equity of the of the of the real estate. Uh, and I forget the percentages, but Realty Income got a percentage of equity in the real estate. They also uh, invested about 600 million in, in preferred and paid off some preferred. The important thing is the the blended return was about 7.7 percent. Uh, so it was definitely you know accretive or attractive uh, to uh, realty income investors. What really was interesting with this deal and the, what made it attractive was the fact that there was existing debt uh, that was on the property that realty income was able to step in and basically assume. And so there was no new debt that had to be issued, which, of course, that would be extremely higher interest today. If, if new debt were issued for realty income, yeah. you're probably talking about a you know, somewhere a sub six, maybe a five, seven, five point eight percent interest rate. So they were able to utilize existing debt, which was about three point seven five percent, which, again, that that generated a very attractive um, return for for realty income. And again, I'm I'm anxious to see realty income get into you know, get into some more of these deals. Um, I believe that, you know, the casino sector in general, and I'm talking about in the U.S. as well as Europe, by the way, yeah. um, I think the casino um, uh, sector is, is very um, aligned for a sell leaseback. So a lot of these companies like Bellagio, MGM, of course, you know, sold the properties uh, to become a REIT and eventually Vici bought that company, which was uh, MGM Growth Properties. Uh, but a number of these casinos really don't need to own the real estate. And so it makes sense. These REITs are really in a perfect position to uh, to help these casinos monetize their assets, uh, utilizing the sell leaseback structure. So that's something we're really focused on. I think you're going to see more companies execute sell leaseback transactions in this environment. Again, with this with these rising rates. If you look, there is about $12 trillion of $12 trillion of net lease properties around the world that companies like Vici or Realty Income or Agree, WP Carry, that they can purchase. And what's, but we're, what's really interesting is there's $1.2 trillion of, of debt with uh, S&P 500 companies that will be maturing over the next three years. And when that debt reprices, it's going to make it extremely more attractive for companies like Realty Income to step in and say, buy some assets from Target or from Home Depot or some of these large companies, because it's just it's a lot more efficient for them to to sell the real estate, lease it back to a to a landlord like Realty Income, because you lock in these long term, uh, basically cap rates over long periods of time. So the return for these companies are really more attractive. Uh, right now in this in this particular environment. So we think there'll be a tremendous demand in the net lease sector, yeah. and which is now the third largest sector 
uh, of equity REITs in the U.S. And we, we, think, we think that will continue to grow. And you'll at some point have the net lease REITs being the most dominant sector within the equity REIT universe. Yeah, so, so a, a couple of questions from that. And actually, it's from some of our community as well, Anders and Kevin. They kind of asked, do you think it, obviously, I think you kind of do, but do you think it is a smart move for realty income to move into these kind of properties? Or do you see it as a move that's kind of stepping on Vici's toes, um, so to speak? Yeah, no, I think it's a really a good a good move for for realty income. I mean, they, you know, scale has its advantages, and these are bigger deals. I mean, you know, this was like a you know billion. I mean, if you look at the last two deals, one was one point eight billion. Now we've got under, just under a billion. So you think about them. I mean, it would take it would take a lot of advanced auto parts stores or a lot of uh, you know uh, tractor supply stores to yeah. to do the same volume, so they can go and do one big transaction. Um, and, and so that's one is just, it's a lot easier for them. Plus they, they own these trophy assets. I mean, I think, you know, the, the casino sector is proven, um, even during the pandemic, you know, we saw with Beachy hundred percent rent collection, you know, which is unheard of, you know, hundred percent rent collection, uh, during the pandemic. Um, and also during recessions, the gaming sector has actually performed pretty well, um, at least in the U S. And so, you know, I think Realty Income has done an excellent job. I know the CEO, the management team really well. We, we interview all of these CEOs very frequently to kind of get their insight. And I can tell you in terms of the, you know, acquisitions, screening for these properties, Realty Income does an excellent job with the coverage ratios. Again, these are trophy properties. You know, I, I ask people a lot. I mean, I'm sure you've all been to Las Vegas and, you know, you know I can't really envision or imagine a you know mgm dark closing down you know it's just hard to hard to even because you think about it the the worst kind of black swan is the pandemic which of course you know mgm was technically shut down um there was nobody you know operating in the casinos for a period of time but they still collected rent so they've gone through recessions pandemics and also just the the las vegas market in general um is doing extremely well and uh, there's a lot of growth there. So you definitely look for realty income to expand that business. And, and conversely, Vici has expanded outside of gaming. You know, they're not only they're not just a gaming uh, REIT anymore, gaming landlord. They are expanding in other experiential sectors. Uh, they're in amusement parks now and some golf uh, operations and now wellness, health and wellness. So I definitely look for Vici to start expanding here. So this is the game is really about consolidation. It's a very fragmented market. I mentioned twelve trillion dollars. So you're, what you're going to see is the bigger get bigger. I definitely believe, and I've written about this quite a bit. So this is nothing new. But you know, I think companies like Spirit Realty, which I'm a shareholder in as well, um, I think they potentially are a takeover target. I think company like Realty Income uh, should be pursuing Spirit um, at, at some price. And so I do think there is some opportunity for consolidation within the REIT sector. There's around, I don't know, 17 REITs now in our, in our overall coverage spectrum. And so we think there'll be a bit of consolidation uh, within the net lease REIT sector. And there'll be maybe, you know, a couple of really big names. And Realty Income Beach, agree, will probably be in that list. WP Carey will probably be in that list, although they've struggled quite a bit uh, with their office exposure. Um, and uh, But of course, they've got a, a very impressive industrial a business as well. 
So, um, yeah, I think you're going to see more of that. And, and, and by the way, it's not just in the net lease sector. I mean, I think retail in general, shopping centers, for example, we saw an announcement this week. In fact, Monday morning uh, announcement that uh, Kimco, ticker KIM, is acquiring RPT, which is about a $2 billion transaction. So I think you'll see more retail consolidation, um, whether or not, you know, Realtin, uh Kimco goes after, for example, Retail Opportunity Investment Corp, ROIC. We think that would be a pretty healthy combination, uh, M&A deal for, for Kimco. So I think you're going to still see some more consolidation, especially right now with the dis- with the pricing discounts that you're seeing uh, in the REIT space. So, so Brett, maybe uh, because I also own some realty income, right? And when I was looking into it, and this is what I want to ask you before we move to the other uh, uh, topics for today, I... I often have the feeling like this company is becoming so big that it's hard for them to uh, to grow and you mentioned already they need to do really big deals now i also saw them going into into europe and being in europe it feels a bit for me like diversification and the and the seek for growth so so what's your opinion on that for for such a large company already as realty income I, i know you mentioned just about the opportunity of the entire market uh, but it sounds like it really needs to come then a lot from acquisitions or really, really big deals. And the question is, how many are there and how attractive are they for a company like Realty Income? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And again, I, I mentioned that, that, that number, 1.2 trillion. So when you look at the, just in the US, for example, the S&P companies that have debt is maturing. I mean, I think, you know, Realty Income is in a perfect position to utilize their scale advantage. And, um, you know, I look at this sector a lot like, you know, I was I'm, I'm sure I'm older than you all. But back in the in the I don't know, the 80s, when the banks were starting to consolidate and you had a lot of these super regional banks that were consolidating, you know, companies that Bank of America and Wells Fargo were, were buying a lot of these regional banks. There were just mm-hmm. way too many banks. And so I, I look at the net lease sector uh, a lot like I did in the banking world in the 80s. So I think you're going to see more of that consolidation because, again, it doesn't take a lot of cost to run a net lease REIT. You know, you're mm-hmm. not, there, there's not a lot of labor involved. There's not a whole lot of management involved in, the, these, in these properties like, like hotels or apartments. Yeah. So I definitely believe, you know, companies like Realty Income have, an infra- have infrastructure in place um, and, and the margins are really good for them. So Again, those two advantages, the scale advantage is really what, what's out there. Now, they are going to have to grow more, obviously, because they've got a much bigger denominator to grow. But, but again, they've been successful. They just raised their guidance from $6 billion to $7 billion. I think yeah. they'll probably blow past that as well, it's, especially if we look at an acquisition like a Spirit or some, another, another big company that they acquire. So, um, I definitely think, uh, you know, Realty Income is a, a very attractive now, obviously, from a valuation perspective, um, the company's trading at a, at a really, not an all-time low, but they're certainly trading at a pretty massive discount. And of course, you know, any company that's going to, you know, brand the company as the monthly dividend company, the last thing they're going to do is cut the dividend. You yes, know? of so, course. Of um, course. Pretty, pretty safe. Yeah. Awesome. I mean... We're, we're still on the news of the week, um, so I'm, I'm still quite excited to get into more questions, and we, I'm most certain that we'll talk about this later on, but we'll kind of just move on just a little bit. And I did want to touch on one thing. Um, I do follow you on Seeking Alpha, and I do know that you have a book coming up, and I think it's a it's a pretty big deal. If you just maybe want to give some information around that, because I, um, I think it's a pretty yeah. awesome achievement. 
Yeah, I had the, um, I think I put it in the other room, but I actually have a, I don't have the book yet. I'll have the book in about, about uh, two weeks, I hope. But I actually have the cover, but it is, I do have the read for dummies. So this is my first dummies book. You know, everybody's familiar with the yeah. dummies cover, the yellow cover. And um, I'm excited. I mean, this will be my fourth book that I've written. And, um, you know, this one's really special because I really felt like I could, you know, I, you know, I love writing. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this and I just I just love writing and communicating to people. And the dummies book is really good because it's not really much, really more of a, it's not a textbook. My last two books have been very much more of a, more of like an academic approach, but this is really more focused to what I call average investors, average Joe or average Jane. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of entertainment, hopefully in the book that'll make this not only, you know, be fun to read and learn about REITs. And I've covered everything. I mean, I, one of the things I, I wanted to make sure that I did was cover everything that I can imagine, you know, uh, residential mortgage REITs, commercial mortgage REITs, preferred bonds. I mean, the whole soup to nuts, I wanted everything in here. So, um, you know, it really came together nicely. And uh, uh, again, it's, it's available on Amazon now. Of course, you can pre, pre-order it. I'm also going to piggyback that with a masterclass called REITs for Dummies Masterclass. And um, we're actually putting all that together now so you can obviously buy the book, which encourage everybody to do. But also we're going to bundle up the book and the master class. And it'll be a, probably four or five different classes. Um, and uh, you can learn. You can take all those classes. And again, that's I really love teaching. I love writing. Um, I do guest lectures at NYU, at Cornell, at Georgetown, you know, Penn State, uh, Clemson, UNC. You know, so and I'll have to get to Europe and do some over there as well. Um, but uh, I love teaching. I, I'm excited for this book because I, I really think this is something. And by the way, um, I'm going to be writing more dummies books. So I'm doing dividends for dummies. Uh, that'll be my next one. Um, and I've got some really good analysts who are helping me put all of that content together because we we cover not only REITs, we cover BDCs. I wrote an article today on BDCs, um, MLPs, midstream, of course, and uh, utilities and, you know, asset managers, home builders. So everything kind of income, our, our whole shop, our whole research uh, shop is really focused on income and really not just income, but safe income. We really avoid all of this, you know, chasing yield and all the sucker yields and all that. We really focus on stable and predictable income. And you both know, you know, that is the secret to success is just owning companies that have very predictable, sustainable uh, dividends uh, and buy those companies at a margin of safety. I, I can see really this dividend, uh, oh, sorry, this uh, real estate investment trust for dummies book really to pay, uh, to take off because we get so many questions over over the years about, you know, why are why uh, does this have such a high PE ratio? And yeah, well, look at funds from operations. These kind these kinds of yeah. basics, I think, are really really what people are looking for. And once you start studying a bit about real estate investment trust, you straight away get knocked down by by complicated text uh that's that's available so i think it's really really great that it's coming and yeah i was just wondering about the dividend for dummies book i assume that the first page will be de dedicated to why the dividend irrelevance theory is irrelevant <laughs> because that's also a challenge that everyone gets like oh you know dividends are irrelevant it, it's 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 really really hard to argue against that i also think mostly most of the time people are just interested more in growth stocks and therefore don't even want to have a proper discussion about it but yeah really 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 looking uh, forward to it brett 
Yeah, no, I'm excited too. And uh, I definitely will be sending you both a copy. So make sure we get all the addresses and I'll ship out a copy uh, to both of you in about two weeks. Awesome. Super. Awesome. Awesome. Um, okay, so we, we kind of have a, a little segment here. It's kind of a little fun round. Uh, we usually do it just to loosen up a little bit. Um, so I'm going to ask you five questions. It's called our rapid fire round. Um, you'll have two choices, and without thinking, you have to give us your answer. Um, the phone, okay. there's, there's nothing too serious here. Um, so I will start with the first one, nice and easy. Um, do you prefer buying local real estate or REITs? Oh, well, that's a great question. So um, I would say, I know it's a lightning round, so I'll try to be quick. I mean, I prefer REITs because I don't have to manage the property. I don't like dealing with the three T's, the toilets, the trash, and the tenants, right? The three T's. But, but you know, real estate is part of my DNA. I'm looking out this window right here and I can see properties that I've developed. I'm working on some pretty large deals right now. I've got a hundred million dollar mixed use project we're, we're working on right now. I've, I've been on calls today. Um, I love real estate. There are I've written about this. There are benefits to private. There, there's a lot of tax advantages in owning private real estate, such as you know utilizing 1031 exchanges or dep depreciation, the bonus depreciation. Um, so I love, I love real estate, but I would say probably REITs are obviously the easiest, simplest way to go. Um, and, um, and also I could never own a data center or a, you know, uh, or a, you know, hospital yeah. or whatever, you know, so I think owning REITs, you can access so many different, uh, properties. So those pictures in the back are all buildings I built like out back and, you know, little shopping centers and whatever Taco Bell. Um, and, uh, but I would say, hopefully that answers the question. I, I would say both, <laughs> but. But I would say the majority of my interest right now is REITs. Okay. Um, questions to get a little bit more fun here now. So soccer or football? <laughs> oh, man. Well, my daughter's boyfriend is from Honduras, and he's a really good soccer player. So hopefully he's not listening. But I'm not a big soccer fan. Um, when I was in Santiago a couple of years ago, I was on the board of a REIT down in uh, Chile. And I was at Starbucks, and I couldn't speak Spanish. My youngest daughter was with me. She's fluent in Spanish. She works at the Wall Street Journal right now. Lauren Thomas, you have to Google her. She's she's an excellent reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So she was with me in Chile and Santiago and, and I was at Starbucks and they thought I was I was wearing a, a jacket and they thought I was a professional soccer player. And um, so I, I, I posed for some pictures with some people. They thought I was like part of the team. Um, but I like football. Football is really, you know, look, I'm here yeah. in South Carolina. We've got some terrific college football. I'm you know, one hour from Clemson University, which has a, you know, has a great college football team. So uh, probably college. But I will say, if you give me a third choice, it would be basketball. That, that jersey right there, I played basketball at a company called, uh, at a school called Presbyterian, which is a very small small college, about a thousand students. But I played yeah. basketball in college and I love basketball. That's my that's my favorite sport. Okay. Um, third question. Um, Christina Aguilera or Eminem? <laughs> <laughs> okay. If my wife's not watching this, I would go with Christina. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, fourth question. Would you rather to trend on Seeking Alpha or trend on Forbes? 
Oh, you know, I would say, you know, well, let me see. Right now, am I trending on Seeking Alpha? Let me check right. I'll log in real quick. Um, yeah, I'm trending number four on Seeking Alpha right now, which is great. Um, you know, Forbes, Forbes is an interesting business model because Forbes, obviously, with Forbes, I've got to compete with, um, you know, with, with, you know, with all the other, all the other noise. It's not just, you know, so it's harder for me to get trending on Forbes because Forbes is such a bigger platform. So definitely, uh, definitely uh, seeking alpha. Okay. And the last one inspired by all your recent Instagram posts, Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks? Uh, Starbucks for sure. Um, Dunkin' Donuts. I just don't like the coffee at Dunkin'. And I, I know I posted in the airport because they didn't have a Starbucks <laughs> but at the airport that I was at. But Starbucks, I'm addicted. And I'm a shareholder. I'm a shareholder in Starbucks, too. So that that's important. You know, yeah. I definitely want to put money in, in the companies, the stocks that I buy. But, yeah, Starbucks is better. And I'm looking at one right there. I mean, I can see it. I go by there probably twice a day. Uh, Starbucks for sure. Awesome, awesome. Uh, yeah, look, there were just some some fun questions and some some good answers from you. Um, but I think it's a good time actually to get into the main topic, and that is navigating the world of REITs. And look, the first question I have is, how did you get started in real estate and become what we now know as Mr. REIT in 2023? Yeah. Sure. Well, when I was much younger, uh, well, maybe not that young, but when I was younger and I was building these buildings back here with these pictures, um, I sold a couple of those to, to uh, like realty income. I remember when I was uh, probably in my thirties, um, I would go out to Las Vegas. There's a conference that uh, is actually still in operation called the International Council of Shopping Centers. It's a big retail conference. It's basically like the Super Bowl for retail every May. And I would go out to to meet with you know different clients, and I'd go see this big booth. Realty income had a huge booth. They still do. And I would just walk by there and I was just amazed at the, you know, how big this was. And I'd go get a brochure and it's like, wow, they own a bunch of these net lease properties. So I ended up selling a couple of properties like Blockbuster and uh, Econo Lube, which is a car uh, repair shop. I, I sold some buildings to Realty Income. And then as my deals got bigger, I built shopping centers and I sold a couple of my shopping centers. And actually, I bought uh, a shopping center or two from a couple of REITs as well. So I got exposed. Um, to the REITs, they weren't as big back then. I mean, this we're talking, you know, in the, in the 90s, and then in the 2000s um, is really when the REITs, you know, sectors really started to take off. And it's all in the in the dummies book. But about 2000, you know, REITs really started to grow. A lot of new sectors came in, and then of course um, they've really grown a lot. Even coming out of the Great Recession, you had data center REITs and cell tower REITs, and now we have cannabis and farming and all kinds of other stuff. So gaming is, of course, a fairly new one. And so, um, you know, that's how I got exposed to the business. And one of my good friends, he actually was the CEO of Realty Income. And uh, his name's Tom Lewis. Tom has certainly, he's retired. He's on the board of a couple other REITs right now. And Tom was an inspiration for me. He, he was actually the one who said, Brad, why don't you become a writer? And, you know, he thought I was a good writer. I still don't think I'm a great writer, but he thought I was a good writer. And, and, I, and I, I took him up on that. And I started to write more articles and really build a platform to educate. And again, now we've extended that beyond REITs and covering really all of the income space, uh, which is great. And, and now the next chapter, of course, is going to be ETFs and, and launching a series of ETF strategies 
aimed for uh, investors who are looking for income. Really nice, Brett. And you know, I'm even interested to go even a little step, uh, a, a step even back before that, because from all the jobs in the world, you could have chosen to become a doctor, a lawyer, um, a football player, a basketball player. So, what is it that that real estate attracted to you? Well, you know, first I want to be a little humble here. I mean, I, when I played basketball, I rode the bench. I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a scholarship <laughs> student. I was a walk-on. So I don't think I would have made it to the NBA. Um, if my wife would laugh at me if she said I could have been a doctor, because I don't think I could have made it through med school. Um, I loved real estate. I took real estate in college. Uh, my mother has been in real estate her entire career. Um, and one of her first clients was Michelin Tire when Michelin came and set up their North American um, headquarters in, in, uh, in the US. Um, she actually sold houses for all the expatriates who were moving moving in from, from, from France to, to Greenville, South Carolina. And so I, 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 I saw real estate early. My grandfather was in, in the motel business in, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on the coast. And so I've always been exposed to real estate. It's always, it's in my, it's in my blood. It's part of my DNA. Um, and when I got out of college, I knew I wanted to go into real estate. Um, I wanted to learn how to create value from the ground up. I saw a lot of the wealth. Back then, we didn't have technology where all the billionaires made their money back then. So most of the wealth we saw, you know, if you go to the Forbes, you know, 500 billionaire list, and most of those billionaires, they still own real estate. Real estate is a great uh, asset class for wealth creation, also for for tax for tax reasons. I mean, real estate creates a lot of good. It's a tax shield because of depreciation. So that's how I got into it, and uh, ended up going to work with a with a business partner who had a lot of real estate, which exposed me to practically everything from golf courses to hotels, warehouses, shopping centers. Um, so I really got got you know got a lot of experience, and I think that's that's what's really different for me from a lot of writers. Um, because, you know, they learned maybe a lot of that in school, which I did as well. Mm -hmm. I took business and finance and statistics, corporate finance and all this. But but learning how to create value, negotiate lease contracts, contractors, architects, uh, getting properties leased and financed and sold. So I've, I've, I know how this works, in, you know, literally from the ground up. So I think that's really my strategic advantage. The other thing I'll say is I've got probably the best, you know, relationships. I know. You know, I've got, you know, CEOs on my phone that can speed dial, you know, what's going on? Why, why did you do this, that, you know, um, they don't all, always call me back, but I have excellent sources and that's really been valuable for me because, you know, I've learned a lot in school and I've learned a lot in the trenches, but I've also learned a lot from, from these CEOs who are really, for, for the large part, not all, but for the large part, these CEOs are pretty talented. And so there's a, there's a quote that I think uh, Ben Graham's famously said, the most durable education is self-education. And so I've been able to learn a lot about real estate uh, and these REITs by, by meeting and interviewing with these uh, CEOs or CFOs. So that's been, a, that's been extremely valuable for our, for our research. And if, if somebody was just coming out of college right now, is there any advice you would give them? How, how would they get started in this? Because to me, someone that's not in that world, it would seem quite daunting um, to get started. Yeah, well, one thing is I, I, I take interns. So I actually, this summer I had five interns um, and, and I'm going to keep them all. They're all continuing to work with me. They're all still in school. We'll totally hire some when they, when they graduate. Um, I would say, you know, taking these real estate classes, obviously, would be really good. Attending conferences, 
um, you know, the there's a, a conference called NAREIT, which is the National Association yeah. for REITs here. I've gone to those conferences. Um, those are those are good to attend. Um, obviously, you know, going on and reading over earnings, earn, listening to earnings calls, reading transcripts, obviously financial statements, um, all of that has really been important. And, and again, going back to Seeking Alpha, I've learned a lot on Seeking Alpha. I, I learned a lot. I know a lot more now than when I started. And I've learned from a lot of people. I've got some mentors on Seeking Alpha as well. Um, and uh, one, one gentleman I want to mention named Chuck Carnival. Chuck and I have been friends for, for over a decade. He owns a company called Fast Graphs, which stands for Fundamental Analysis Software Tool. It's an amazing uh, software package. They also have international stocks over, over close to 9,000 ticker symbols all over Europe, all over the country now. So, you know, Chuck is a very good friend. He's taught me a lot uh, about value investing. And, uh, you know, again, we, we've got a long, long experience, long term experience um, there. So, uh, but I would say just starting, you know, and hopefully reading some of my articles. And the great thing is I, I, it's harder for me to get available to people because I am pretty stretched. But I mean, I have no problem. As I tell my subscribers at uh, I Read on Alpha, I, I constantly do interviews with them and try to do these analyze out loud videos. Give them like five minutes. Why would you buy or sell this company in five minutes or less? And I really try to help, you know, and again, I, I love what I do. But I would say, you know, surrounding yourself with those types of people would be the way to go. And, and obviously do a lot of reading. There's a lot of books uh, that, that you, I could recommend, starting with the very first book I would read, if you have it, is, of course, The Intelligent Investor, which is Ben Graham's famous book. Awesome. Um, and you, you kind of touched on this earlier on. You, you do go beyond REITs. Can you just tell us a little bit about your investing style now? Has, has it changed over the years and how has it developed? It has changed tremendously. I mean, you know, when I was younger, I didn't really know what speculative means. You know, I had to go lose money and some serious money, some serious money, not just, you know, a few chips in Las Vegas, but in millions, millions of dollars. And I get reminded every day when I drive through my town, you know, there's properties that I lost money on. And that's a constant reminder of not to do that again. So I, I love writing these lessons learned articles. Um, really teaching uh, readers, you know, hey, avoid this pitfall, avoid that mistake. Um, so I had a lot of leverage. Um, banks were just throwing money at us. Again, this was before 2008, 2009. Perhaps that's what led to the Great Recession is a lot of this um, lending that really did not need to occur. Um, and, um, you know, I was also involved in some other businesses. I owned some Papa John's pizza stores. I, I was a multi-unit franchisee. I was a multi-unit franchisee for Athletes Foot, um, so you know I made some I made some bad bets, and um, it all comes back to you know circle of confidence now, and and, and I can't be everything, uh, so I want to be good at really what I'm good at. So I'm I'm basically the re expert in my in my company. Now we have other I've got other analysts who are really good, equally as good at BDCs or equally as good at at C corps or asset managers. So, um, but I've stuck with my circle of confidence. I think that's really the biggest lesson that I've learned is stick to your stick to what you know and uh, no leverage, you know, and, and again, ch not chase yield. I mean, I've got an article uh, I'm going to be publishing soon and, and it's another yield chasing article. I'm trying to discourage people. Don't go do sucker yields. Don't chase these high yields. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've got, you know, so many examples of companies that I said, you know, avoid this company. And uh, they, if they listen, 
you know, that's great. If they didn't listen, you know, it's they've, they've lost money. So we try to really steer investors in the right direction so that they don't get into these uh, same pitfalls. Really, really good. And, and maybe talking about some of, because um, this really nice bridge from the pitfalls, right? Because, and maybe it's a little bit more technical also for our listeners, but my understanding is their real estate investment trust, they need to pay 90% out of their profits into dividends, right? 80 or 90%. And uh, how you say it, can you explain a little bit in this case, like, um when we do our analysis for instance we often see that uh, i don't know if it's realty income uh, or, or one of the stocks they often pay only 60 percent or something like that i'm looking here at fvo um how come that we see these kinds of differences when we hear theoretically oh they need to pay out 90 percent of their uh, uh of their profits yeah so i guess you know reads again you're you're right i mean this is the, probably the most frequently asked questions or perhaps the the biggest myth when it comes to REITs is we don't use the traditional earnings per share metric. We use the funds yeah. from operations. Now, so the funds from operation, just to break it down, that's your net income to the property. That's basically your rental income of the property. Then you add in, you add back in the depreciation because real estate you know, has depreciation. You add back in amortization and subtract out any of the gains on the sale. So that basically creates kind of this yardstick that we use, and this is a gap metric. So it's an approved accounting metric that we use uh, for to determine really that, you know, the earnings for those companies. Now, the other thing we do is take it a step further in, in which we have the adjusted funds from operations. And that's where we take FFO. We subtract out the straight line rents and the recurring CapEx and add back compensation, lease intangibles and the, the deferred um, connect, uh, financing costs. And that that's basically more of your realistic cash flow before the company pays the dividend. So when we look at payout ratios, the important thing is utilize the, the AFFO metric, you know, but, but mostly beyond that, we look at FFO because that's what the companies generally report. And those are the gap metrics that we use. So trying to think what your question was um, related so, to so that. The According to, let's say, what we all learn is like they need to pay 90% out, right? But if I look, Correct. for instance, at, uh, where is it? Okay. So, Realty okay. income pays 75% out of FFO uh, okay. in this case. So, so that, that's the, great. Okay, that's it. So the, on the, on the, the REIT law has nothing to do with FFO. So the REIT mm -hmm. law is 90% of taxable income, not FFO, yeah. not FFO, but this is taxable income the company generates they have to pay at least 90 percent most of the REITs pay out closer to 100 percent of their taxable income now that's taxable income so we again we add back depreciation amortization subtract out gains to get the ffo so just to be a requirement under the lead there's a couple requirements to be a REIT. that's one of the major ones you have to the company has to pay out at least 90 percent of their taxable income they also another of the big requirements is they have to own or lease, own or lease, 75% of their portfolio has to be real estate. And I mentioned lease because there's companies like Iron Mountain that doesn't own the, you know, a lot of the real estate. They, they, they lease properties. Um, and so you don't actually have to, uh, theoretically, you don't have to actually own the real estate. You have to, you can lease the property um, and then lease it again, you know, sublease it. So but you have to have at least 75% of the asset base has to be real estate owned or leased. 
and 90% of that income, taxable income, has to be paid out in the form of dividends. The payout ratio is based on the FFO or AFFO number. So those are two different, two different numbers. Uh, th thanks for clarifying that, uh, Brett, because I think this is leading to so much uh, confusion also when people look at, at, the, at the different numbers, right, uh, with this in mind. Thanks. Yeah, and I and I made that, hopefully this book, I mean, that's another, I'm really excited because I, I think I made that very clear in there. That is a, one of the frequent questions that people ask, and, yeah. um, you know, hopefully that's clear. I know that's clear in the book as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So so when you're, when you're analyzing a REIT for the first time, what, what do you typically look for? Is there any red flags that you look for and, and will immediately write that read off or what exactly are, are you looking for? Like red flags? Yes. Um, yeah, I would say kind of, let's start with what we just talked about, you know, the, the payout ratio. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's an important one. Um, now, we gotta be careful though, because every sector uh, is different. Uh, so in other words, let's go net lease. Net lease, there's not a whole lot of, of, like we mentioned, you know, CapEx and leasing commissions, you know, those are fairly common expenses for office buildings. And, uh, you know, you're taking out carpet, you're paying a real estate broker to bring in a new tenant, you know, so with net lease properties, we don't have those costs, you know, I mean, generally those are long-term leases. So there are certainly occasions where you have to spend money on the property, but in general, these are, these are pretty much bonds that don't require much of anything. So a, a net lease REIT can pay out more of their earnings, AFFO. And so I'm comfortable if a net lease REIT like Realty Income or Vici, if they pay out you know, 82, 83 or 84 or even 85% of their AFFO, I'm okay because there's not a whole lot more that goes in there. Now, an office REIT is a totally different situation. So if you have an office REIT that's sitting there with an 85% payout ratio, that's that's something to look at because there's going to be a lot more costs that go back into those properties um, when they have to be released or retenanted. And so you can't just look at each, look at the whole sector and say, well, if there's a payout ratio of 85%. So we look at it from sector by sector, but payout ratio is one. The closer you get to 100 uh, and we for, we forecasted so many of these dividend cuts. I mean, um, it's it's great because I hopefully we've steered a lot of a lot of people away from these sucker yields. Sucker yield is simply it's too good to be true, you know. Um, and so we want to get away from those. Um, that's number one. Balance sheet and balance sheets are really tied directly to um, to payout ratios. Typically, a company that has a high payout ratio, they don't have very good debt. I mean, so and and they're not rated or they have a sub-investment grade rating. So a company, let's say, for example, and this is a battleground stock, I, I hate to even mention it, but I will, Medical Property Trust. Now, Medical Property Trust, ticker MPW, we put them on the dividend watch list uh, back in January. And I got a lot of people mad at me. A lot of these trolls came out on Twitter and, you know, you hate me, you hate me, whatever. Okay, well, we had to do it because the payout ratio was basically right at 100%, maybe 97%. This is a you know sub-investment grade uh, or junk junk rated non-investment grade company said higher leverage payout ratio is high certainly we had to take them to a dividend watch list and downgrade the company which is exactly what we did and um, of course now when they cut the dividend they get mad at me too and they're like oh you know you 
you, uh, you, you, you wrote on the company and they cut the dividend. I said, well, I did write on the company and I wrote on the company like seven months ago when I said they're going to cut the dividend and they did cut the dividend. So I think the balance sheet and the payout ratio, again, they're tied really together, that high leverage. Um, looking, kind of taking that a step further, looking at the company's cost of capital. I mean, if the company's got an extremely high cost of capital, um, then it's not able to grow the business. I mean, they, there's, you know, they have to transact buy properties at this incredibly higher risky cap rate. Um, so we look at the cost of capital. I think that's a that's a huge indicator uh, of, of, of future growth prospects of the company. Um, so we look at we look at a lot of the historic relevance of the company. How have they performed? How, how why did they cut the dividend in 2008? Um, and why, you know, uh, you know, anything related to the past? What are their earnings? You know, what happened during the pandemic? So we look at the, the past of the company. We look at the current situation. Okay, what's the current setup? What's the guidance? What are they buying? What are they selling? And then we look at the future. And so we look at primarily analyst estimates because there's a lot of analysts, especially here in the US, in the REIT space, we can go look at these analyst estimates and we can say, okay, well, realty income is projected to grow by 5% per year in 24 and 25, which is consistent with their historic uh, dividend growth so our earnings growth. So I think we we look at all the things. I mean, we try to dissect this company um, and really, you know, break it apart and understand all of the fundamentals. And we rely on any information we can get, whether it's our internal research or outside external analysts that look at the company. And again, going back, we have terrific insight with management. So we may see something or hear something in our interviews with management that might cause us not to want to buy the company. I mean, we're not going in there as cheerleaders just to say, hey, you know, let's do an interview. We go in there and we try to find something that's going to either help us with our buy or sell recommendation. And, and lots of times we learn a lot of news from these CEOs, not about their company, but they may tell us something about another company or competitor. And that could be valuable information as well. So we try to look at these companies, you know, really in, in great detail. And that's why we've been successful, I think, because we are we're fundamental based. We're not market timers. And you know, your channels, European dividend growth investor. So we speak the same language. And uh, it's all about, you know, dividend growth, dividend safety, because over time, if the company's going to grow the dividend, it's going to outperform. It's going to outperform the other non-dividend payers over time, especially if you can purchase the stock or the shares at a, at a you know, wide margin of safety. Thanks, Brett. And I mean, what can I say? It's uh, you had the nail on the head there, um, but you triggered me as well because we started to talk a little bit also about um, you know the cost of capital and such, and we got a qu question also from Simon and, and from Kalis, and they're really wondering like you know we come out of this period of cheap debt, and now the interest rates are rising, and then the Fed keeps also uh, uh, trying to fight inflation. And the question really is like. After this decade, has the game just changed? Are we now like with higher interest rates for longer? And what should we expect then from the real estate investment uh, trust sector, the retail sector? Is this just the new normal? Is that what we're looking at? That's kind of the question. Now, that's a great question. And, you know, I just uh, to answer that, I actually wrote an article recently. And the title to that article was called The Answer is Seven. And the reason I wrote this article is back when I was in college or right after I got out of college, I read an article called The Answer is Nine. And it was written by a, about a Harvard professor who was teaching his class 
1971 uh, about cap rates. And at that time, in 1971, the average cap rate was and cap rate again that's your 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 net operating income in your first year divided by the purchase price so that's your yield we call it yield on cost so the yield on cost or cap rate was nine percent on average and and today my argument is it's it's well that's not my argument the, the cap rates today are closer to seven percent across all property sectors you know net lease self-storage shopping centers so cap rates have definitely adjusted to seven but seven is still not a bad number because it really is not as what's more important is what is the interest cost and what is the what's the difference between the 10 year treasury and cap rates today. Now, our whole argument about REITs and this is really all centered around what we think is going to be the first quarter of 2024 is we believe could be the opportunity set. So you have you have between now, September 1st and the end of the year to really start building out your, your portfolio because we believe at some point uh, what goes up is going to come down. Now, I'm not expecting rates to come down in the first quarter, perhaps in the second or third quarter uh, or fourth, but what I am expecting is in the first quarter rates to pause. At that point, we'll pause. The Fed's trying to get rates down to 2%. We're just over three. They're trying to you know keep getting them down to 2%. And, but at that point, we'll probably see another rate increase. And then I believe we'll see at some point, first quarter, 24, a pause. And that pause will be the mark that everybody, the market will say, okay, we're done and let's start moving back to normal. So your point, what is normal? That's a great question. If I knew that answer, you know, I, <laughs> I, I would probably be sitting in an island somewhere instead of my office. But here's the thing I will say. I will say an office, you're not going to get back to normal. Office will not, those valuations will not get back to normal. Whatever Boston Properties was trading at in 2016 and whatever, you know, uh, SL Green was trading at in 2016, mm -hmm. I don't know what those were. I don't think we'll ever get to those, those valuation levels again. Office, I'm not saying it's, it's permanently, um, um, uh, uh, you know, is is permanently uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, you know, uh, anyway, I'll think of it in a set. So I think the office sector is, and it really you have to look at office too by by market. I mean, in the in New York, I was up in New York two weeks ago versus say down in West Palm where I was down there Monday, South Florida. So the office markets are really completely different. You have to bifurcate, you know, the off good and the bad in the office. But I don't think the office market is ever going to get back to normal per se. Now, I can say, you know, net lease, um, I think possibly net lease. Again, when rates come back down, it's net lease is a spread investing business. So you look at your cost of capital and you look at the cap rates. And generally, over time, net lease have generated profit margins of around 150 to 200 basis points. And I think they'll continue to do that um, over time, especially, as I mentioned, because of this wave of consolidation that I talked about earlier. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of demand for that type of product and a lot of supply that can be consolidated. Um, so I would say in terms of normal, again, you just have to look at each sector individually. I mean, we love data centers right now. We love cell towers. Obviously, there's been a big run up in AI, uh, artificial intelligence that have served as a catalyst for the data center space. So I'm glad we got in digital realty at the right time. And then we've seen that price now go up 
again, because that's the infrastructure, that's the backbone, critical backbone for AI is data centers. Without data centers, there's not, AI would not exist. So I think that's important. We love the tech space, warehouses. Again, they're riding on that same kind of tech trifecta. We call it tech trifecta because we have cell towers, we have uh, data centers, and we have logistics or warehousing. They're all integrated. You know, they all need each other. So we call that, we, we really like to overweight the technology space in real estate. Again, cell towers, data centers, warehouses. That's where we want to overweight the capital. Net lease, we like overweighting too because we think that is going to be the consolidation and those will be the big, big names over time. And then you've got some of those other sectors you can look at. I mean, cannabis is extremely volatile. Um, it's sold off massively and there's a lot of legal legislation that um, that is uh, kind of overriding that really stock performance, but cannabis in other space. But there's, the great thing is there's a lot of way to play it and it depends, answer, answer your question. And I know I answered it in a long way, but it just depends on what those, what those sectors are. I will say, I don't think office will ever get back to normal. Thanks, Brett. And it's interesting that you also mentioned uh, artificial intelligence as such, because I come a bit out of the IT sector as well. And um, actually I'm, I'm, on digital digital realty trust, I really struggle with that one because um, over the last four or five years, let's say, uh, when it was all about the clouds and, and the private cloud, I didn't see them growing. So th this was one of the biggest growth eras for me for such a real estate investment trust. So now AI pops up and I'm thinking like, okay, will it really trickle down into their uh, funds from operations? Because they have been struggling. So. For me, I really lost confidence in digital realty trust because of the the, the lacking uh, funds from operations they had the years before when there was a whole cloud boom and everything. So I'm I'm wondering um, uh, where where yeah what makes you bullish on on digital realty trust? I know the price share appreciated, but where the fundamentals also appreciate? I haven't looked at them for the last year. I must confess. Yeah, well. You're right. I mean, I'm not as bullish today. I mean, I was, you know, at, you know, under a hundred bucks. I mean, right. And we, there was mm -hmm. a short attack. Uh, we hit that one hard because the valuation, and again, we're up to 130. So we went from a hundred, yeah. like 98 to 130. So it's done well. Um, you know, again, fundamentals are really strong. They've got a triple B rated balance sheet investment grade. They, you know, they've really done well. They've had a little bit of, uh, you know, management turnover, uh, which is fine. I actually I like the new CEO. He's younger. They brought in some kind of new fresh blood. But if you look at the company historically, I mean, you're right. Coming out of the, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, they were generating, you know, probably on average about eight or nine percent um, growth overall. And over the last, you're right, 19 was negative growth, minus 10, two percent, minus two percent in, in 2020, back up to seven percent in 21, minus four percent in 22. But again. Analyst estimates are about 5% in 24, 7% in 25. So they're, they're really starting to move the needle again. And what they've been doing is recycling assets. That's really been the key to their growth. They're taking, and, it, and they've got so much development pipeline and it takes a while. You have to be patient with this one because they, they are in fact, you know, a developer. They build these, these shell yeah. buildings and some of them they lease out to hyperscalers. Some of them they don't, but it takes a while to for them to um to you know get these buildings occupied and for that income to be generating so um you know that's where it comes in that's where really our, our advantage of meeting with management and going looking at these properties and evaluating the the development pipeline 
that that's given us a lot of confidence because we knew that income was going to be catching up over time. Um, and it has. And it, I think you're going to see that. And obviously the, the share price has reacted. Now, there's been a, some euphoria here with this share price, of course, with AI. Anything that's got you know AI associated with it, people get crazy about it. But, um, I, you know, I, I definitely think it's about it's actually, you know, I would say it's fairly valued right now. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't go crazy with it. I mean, it's, they're trading back at a, uh, you know, 21, 22 multiple and AFFO. Again, you could have bought it or, you know, we recommended it back at a 16 multiple. So now they're 22, yeah. you know, so I would say way no, over for that one for sure. yeah exactly you're, you're right with these kinds of things it's probably more like a pullback or a turnaround play yeah uh, i'm staying skeptical there uh, i really wonder if they also have the negotiation power with uh, their 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 clients and such knowing also that they have some of the big tech companies that are also looking at cost savings and everything so it will be really interesting on the uh, on this one yeah. well and again once again i think you know is these debt maturities is Amazon, I don't, you know, these big hyperscalers, I mean, they're going to need capital. So leasing is really the way to get, they don't need to be yeah. owning these, these assets. They can make more money efficiently leasing versus, versus um, owning the real estate. Yeah. Good point. Well, um, there's probably so many more questions we could ask you, but I think at this time we might move on to some of our listeners questions because we got a couple of them and, we like to give them an opportunity to to ask you some questions, um, and we'll start with Marek, um, who has asked you particularly. Do you think that REITs can be a lifetime investment, or is it better to switch between them according to the market cycle? Yeah, I believe, especially now. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say that. You know, back earlier, um, but now. When we go back over, you know, REITs were formed in 1960 in the Eisen, when President Eisenhower was in office. And the first few years were rocky, you know, and, and a lot of the REITs were mortgage REITs back then. Totally different business model. And then it was the, like I mentioned that kind of the 80s were really the spark that went off in the 90s. REITs started to grow in size and now they're massive, almost two trillion dollar, you know, sector. And so. What I, what I can say is REITs have now been battle tested. We've gone through multiple recessions, a pandemic. You compare REITs to some of the other income alternatives like BDCs and MLPs, they haven't been around as long. Um, I think the real opportunity set is this. In the US, REITs own around 10% of all commercially held institutional property in the US. So as I drive down this, this, this street or drive back home, you know, one out of 10 buildings is probably owned by a REIT. It may be the McDonald's, it might be the mall, it might be the shopping center, it might be the warehouse. But guess what? Nine out of 10 of those buildings aren't owned by REITs. So show me another business model that has so much opportunity for consolidation. And so I think it's that's the, that's really what I would say is a long-term play. You're gonna, these companies, and there's a there's also take also consider the fact that there is an insatiable demand for income. The aging population, which we refer to as the silver tsunami, has so many people that are either you know in retirement or soon to be in retirement that are looking for alternative income. They don't want to own you know duplexes and deal with all the headaches. So REITs are perfect for that. I mean, it's perfect. Um, so I would just say you know certainly don't go all in. And this may be a question I'll go ahead and answer, but I would put somewhere between ten percent of your investments up to. 30%. That's a high number. Yeah. Uh, but if you're younger, you can handle it. So 10% to 30% of your 
investment portfolio could potentially go in REITs. I've, I've found most investors own about 50, have about 15% of their retirement in, in REITs. Um, and that's a, that's a safe number, I believe, as long as you're picking, you know, the really good companies, not chasing yield and all that. But um, at any rate, that's how I definitely think this is a lifetime play because obviously the power of compounding, you know, you're going to see that those dividends really accumulate over time. Um, Alan has asked us a he's asked us a couple of questions, and the first one is: What are your three best tips when looking at mortgage REITs? Well, I, I tend to stay away from residential mortgage for for really a couple of reasons, and but one in particular is it just it, it's not suitable for retiree to to own residential mortgage REITs. They're because they're they're leveraged; they have more debt than than most than the, the other counterparts, um, and they're extremely more volatile because they have much a lot of debt. Um, and it's just, it's a risky game. And we've looked and I've gone, you know, I put together studies and I do this about every six months just to tell people not to, not to do this. You've got to be a really a professional trader, a market timer to really, to try to make money in mortgage REITs. And I just would not suggest that to most readers. And I, I write about that in the book and we cover REITs and I'm not saying they're all bad, preferreds are safer um than the common but uh but in general you know mortgage REITs are just dangerous and you can do a lot better and sleep well at night without having to take that elevated risk now the commercial mortgage REITs a little different category they're still higher risk than equity REITs uh obviously commercial real estate they own buildings plus the commercial mortgage REITs are shorter duration uh you know contracts uh they're shorter term uh, debt arrangements or agreements with their with their customers where the mortgages are longer term. So you've got to know where to play the mortgage space. Um, and there's a lot more liquidity in the, in the mortgage and com commercial mortgages. Now, most of the private equity firms, albeit, you know, Blackstone, Starwood, TPG, uh, KKR, uh, they, Apollo, most of them all have, you know, mortgage REITs. So we, we like the biggest, the baddest, the safest, which would be like Blackstone and Starwood. Those are our picks in those, in the, in that sector. And and we know you like to write books. Do you think you'll write a book specifically on mortgage REITs? Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know if I would go write a book. I do think, you know, we will be launching a high yield ETF. And I decided not to include mortgage REITs in our, our first ETF because I want to keep it focused to, you know, to retirees and, and average, you know, more average investors. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity set for that. And I think it's a high yield product. I don't know if it'll be a book. I think it'll be an ETF and it'll be an ETF that will include, you know, higher yielding mortgage REITs that are safe. It'll include preferreds. It'll include bonds. It'll include um, uh, midstream MLP and it'll include uh, BDCs. And I think when you, when you roll all that up, you're probably talking about a, you know, maybe a 10% roughly yield. Um, and, um, and we would manage that it probably passive but we utilize a kind of a screener that uh that kind of gives us more of a hybrid approach so i think that's a strategy i really would like to um launch an etf a high yield etf uh with just some of those safest names in there i think that would perform well but again it's uh anytime i don't care if it's a REIT, etf a stock whatever it is when you get to 10 percent yield you're you're dangerous you know and i think investors need to understand when you when you're investing in a stock that has a double digit dividend, I mean, that is that is a dangerous play. And, and it's just, it, frankly, it's just, 
I, I see this time and time again. I see investors get into trouble. We try to warn them, but every, everybody, all of us have this insatiable demand for, you know, for, for yield. And it's like going to Las Vegas and, you know, you're, you, you just see all the money chips sitting there. You think you can do it. And it's just, it's dangerous. So we really try to avoid uh, putting investors into too much yield because it just doesn't work. It's not sustainable. It is absolutely not sustainable. Good. So, so Brett, uh, time goes so quick. So uh, I think we should also start, you know, rounding up slowly. So I really have one question that, that is also from Alan, uh, one of our uh, lo long loyal listeners is asking like, if you look within the REIT sector, right, which sub-industry, let's say, would you at this moment in time over allocate in and under allocate in? So want to over allocate and want to under allocate. I think we got to raise some clues during the podcast, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess where I'm most bullish is uh, I like the technology, but we've already pointed out data centers are pretty expensive right now. I still like cell towers uh, of, the, of the, there's three, of course. I like American tower. They're, they're, they're international. Uh, if you don't know, they're not just American tower, they're international tower. They should change their name. Um, but it's the uh, same AMC, like American like Express, by the way, uh, Brett. Uh, yeah. I, I think yeah. many people stay away from American Pr Express credit cards uh, here. They don't understand it. Visa, much better, MasterCard. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So I'd say I like I like American Tower. Um, you know, the industrial space has gotten pretty, pretty, you know, it's fairly valued, but I mean, Rexford. Is a name we like a lot. That's the industri that's the pure play California. Obviously, they've been beaten up because of the California dynamics. But I like Rexford. I think Rexford is is fine. Um, I think that company is pretty cheap right now. So and the industrial again that they tie into that tech trifecta that I mentioned. You know, so you, I think owning technology right now, and you're going to see in the dummies book we covered prop tech. Most of these REITs have some element of prop tech. I just interviewed yesterday the CEO of Smart Rent. And I'm actually going to use Smart Rent, I think. I mean, it may use Smart Rent in some some uh, properties. I'm buying some townhouses. I'm going to rent them out. And I may use Smart Rent technology. So there's a lot of prop tech that I think is really interesting. And another, another category, but a lot of REITs do have prop tech. So including industrial. So I like you know, Rexford Industrial. I like American Tower. And again, I have to go back to, to net lease because again, I, I just think I'm so bullish because this is going to be like the new wave of bank financing. The banks are shut down, right? And rates are pretty elevated. And so where's a good place to access capital? It's right now with these net lease REITs. That's the, that to me is a huge catalyst that nobody yeah. on Seeking Capital is really even talking about. Um, they probably don't understand it. You know, I, you see in the background, I built this stuff. I know a net lease pretty well. I would say net lease is going to be if I put my, you know, all of my kids in in realty income and Beachy and say agree, uh, they would think I am the smartest thing in the world 10 years from now. Um, <laughs> when they look at their stock account, say, Dad, why did Dad got got us these three net lease reads? So I think those are those are kind of my, my, my bullish, probably the bearish right now. You know, cannabis is just so volatile. I mean, it's not bad, but it's just too volatile. So I just I would say stay away from you know, cannabis, uh, especially for most investors. Um, I would say, you know, um, you know, the other category probably, um, you know, we got out of prisons before everybody, which is, too, which was a great thing. I don't, I'm glad we didn't get enamored of prisons like everybody else. Um, you know, um, 
What, what about something like uh, premium shopping malls like uh, Simon Property Group? Yeah, I mean, look, I like. Uh, here's the thing: it's the dominant player, right? I mean, you want to yeah. if you're going to invest in the malls, you want the dominant name. So, yes to Simon. Our our mall and uh, right. Actually, I'm going to be taking my mother to Cheesecake Factory when I get off this call, and I'll be at the mall, Simon Property, and they're they are the, they have the fortress balance sheet. I mean, if you're going to own malls, you want to own that one. Um, you know, so retail. I like retail a lot. I think. Um, um, but I think some of these other, you know, the smaller names, office, of course, that's probably where I'm probably the most bearish, especially yeah. New York City. You know, SL Green, no thanks. And Vernado, no thanks. Uh, Empire State, no thanks. Um, I do like Highwoods. You know, they're based in, in the Carolinas. Uh, they, 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 by the way, they're the only office REIT that, that did not cut the dividend in the Great Recession. So I like I like the I like this you know Sunbelt focused office space, but again I'm I'm definitely bearish in in the you know uh, gateway markets you know New York San Francisco office sector I definitely would avoid that um, you know I like apartments I like Mid America I like Sunbelt you know Sunbelt that's another ETF I'd like to build as a Sunbelt focused you know ETF um, that that you know I, I live in South Carolina but I'm down in Florida a lot and throughout this you know Sunbelt. I think those markets will do really well. Um, and again, I don't, I guess I'm bearish on the residential mortgage. I definitely would stay away from all of that yield chasing. It's just not good. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of EPR. I'll tell you the theater REIT, um, you know, they, they've really had some headwinds now with the, you know, the, the strike, the movie strike, um, you know, definitely they've already cut the dividend, um, you know, 55% exposure to theaters, uh, way too many theaters in the U S um, they're going to have some wood to chop. So I just would stay away from EPR. There's better opportunities in traditional net lease like Realty Income and, and Beachy. Nice. Well, when, you, when I heard you talk about office REITs, I had to think about my investment in Castellum. And uh, I don't know if you know this name from your colleagues from Sweden. Okay. So that, that one uh, we got uh, as investors in Europe pretty much burned on. But I think here it was more like uh, opportunistic management, specifically the CEO who kind of we all learned later was a bit of a prima donna let's call it like that yeah uh, which is also of course often to look at right what kind of management is there um, but uh, maybe as a last question from the show are there any real estate companies i'm on purpose not saying reads uh, but real estate companies that you that you know from europe and uh, yeah, that you maybe have an, have an interest in you know Actually, Leo, uh, Leo and Sebastian both have done some really great coverage in European names. So I'm not as familiar. I'm looking forward to doing yeah. some. He wrote on some, some French companies. I have a strategic relationship with a company called Alpha Value in Paris, and I go out there mm -hmm. every year, plan on going out again here in October um, and meeting with them. But we're, we're definitely expanding coverage in Europe. I mean, that's why I brought in two European yeah. analysts. And, um, you know, I think there's some great opportunities and maybe potentially even a, a European um, or an international ETF as well, kind yeah. of on my, on my radar. Um, so I, I definitely, I love Europe uh, and I definitely want to get back there soon. Yeah, super. Well, thank you, Brett. Um, thank you so much for joining us and, and, and for taking the time, uh, well, effectively also to help educating our audience and, and share so much wealth, uh, our knowledge with us. It's for me been really, really a blast. I enjoyed it as well. And uh, I'm, I'm here, to, here to do it again next time. So just let me know and uh, let's do it again. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, as European DJ said, thanks a million. Um, we really appreciate it. And to our listeners, we hope you got some value from this and 
We will see you all next week. Remember, both of us at Dividend Talk are not certified financial specialists through formal education. We are just two guys sharing our journey for inspiration and entertainment purposes. Hence, this is not investment advice. Although we do our best, we can't promise that the information discussed is always correct, nor appropriate for you or anybody else. We always recommend that you do your own due diligence and be accountable for your own choices. As we always say, you can't borrow conviction from others. Last but not least, by listening to our podcast, you agree to hold us harmless from any ramifications, financial or otherwise, that occur to you as a result of acting on information provided in this podcast. 